morning. Jeremy asked me to read the passage for today's sermon. It's Luke 2, 1 through 20. If you want to open your Bible. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angel had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as he had, just as had been told them. Thank you, Eli. Let's bow our heads and let's pray once more. Father, we pray that you would illuminate your holy word to our understanding, that you would give us peace as we meditate upon the Prince of Peace. We thank you, God, of the profound nature of you providing salvation for the world. So we ask God, minister to us in our hearts and our minds in this time. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. Well, the reason why I had Eli read that is because that's the end of the sermon. <laughs> you thought you were getting off easy. See, you don't know about special occasion Sundays. They allow me to preach longer. But take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 8. What's interesting about what Eli just read in Luke 2 is that it stands as the fulfillment. It's been estimated between 40 and 60% of the Bible is prophecy. We live in a day and age where many people have dismissed the prophetic tellings of God's Word. And what this has done is it served to diminish the mindset of many people of the idea of inerrancy. Now, what do I mean by that? Either God's word is true or it's not true. But you can't simply take that the New Testament is true and the Old Testament is not. Or as some people are, 
The red letters are what gets them, right? The red letters, red letter theology. That doesn't work either. The fact is, is all of God's word is true from beginning to end. It has complete continuity. It does not contradict itself whatsoever. And people have had 2,000 years to try to figure out how to do so and cannot. So we stand on the foundation of the unchanging word of God. And when we have something as strange as the birth of a child in less than convenient circumstances of which people are willing to lay down their responsibilities and travel to come see what is going on. You've got to ask yourself why. What is God trying to say in an instant like that? And I think what we find is it goes much bigger or it goes much further uh, than candy canes and round-bellied bearded guys. Which I'm okay, I like round-bellied bearded guys, but... But I'm going to ask you to pick up with me about this prophecy that is set forth in Isaiah. If you've ever read the book of Isaiah, you know what I'm going to be getting at. If you have not, I encourage you to take the time. It is worth your time. Long book, but it's worth you taking it three, four chapters at a time, subject by subject, going through it so that you get a good feel for what's going on for a prophet in a time of absolute rebellion against a god who unreservedly loves his people. So let me set the scene for you a little bit as far as history is concerned. Context is a big deal, and we want to hold fast to it. The children of Israel have fallen into great idolatry. They've run away from God. In fact, it started in an instance which you dealt with David's son. You may be familiar with King David. His son Solomon was considered the wisest man that ever lived on the face of the earth, except for the Lord Jesus. But what was interesting about Solomon is that even though he had these points of contact with God himself, two of them, in fact, that were notable, even though he's probably given one of the greatest prayers that you'll ever find in the Bible as far as being able to dedicate the temple to God's glory and to call the people to be personally accountable to God for how they worship and whether or not they sin and asking for God to actively judge the sin of the people. You find that Solomon made a mistake in marrying into many different alliances with many different nations and allowing for many different pagan and foreign influences into his rulership. Having done so, he then builds altars to false gods. That's just what a woman can do to you. Making sure you're paying attention. Making sure you're paying attention. But in doing so, God tells him, I'm going to take the kingdom out of your hands. And I'm going to split it in two. But what's tragic about this is, your father David was faithful to me. And because he was faithful, I'm not going to take it out of your hands. Because I've given you such great revelation, and because you have piddled it away in your old age in this manner, I'm going to rip the kingdom out of the hands of your son who takes over. Now, any of you that have children are sitting here thinking, I don't like that deal. That's not good. And so now you have a divided kingdom. The northern half becomes known as Israel, and ten tribes reside there. The southern half is known as Judah, 
Because by and large, it is the tribe of Judah, but the little tribe of Benjamin is also squeezed in there as well. And Jerusalem and Bethlehem and those types of places that we're familiar with are found in the southern part. So what happens in Isaiah that the king of Syria, also known as Aram, if you want to think about that if you're reading through this later, the king of Syria decides to get together with the king of the kingdom and says, hey, let's go and fight against the southern kingdom and bully them into an alliance so that we can fight against Assyria. Because Assyria was like the bad boys of the day. They would come into your place. They would take everybody that they captured and put large hooks through their cheeks and chain them all together and drag them back to Assyria only to skin them and cover their furniture while cutting off their heads, filling them with oil and lighting torches in order to make their dinner more bright. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Merry Christmas. So now you are medium-sized power nations. And since the northern kingdom had gotten away from God a long time ago, they're scraping for answers how to save themselves. Well, of course, the answer is you need more people. We just got to have a bigger army. Maybe if we can come in this way. So what do we do? Let's bully the southern kingdom into getting involved. And so the southern kingdom has a king named Ahaz. Ahaz has a choice. And Isaiah comes to him. And he says, Ahaz, you are king over Judah. But you don't need to freak out about the Syrians, not the Assyrians, the Syrians and the Israelites coming down after you. Don't. Trust God and he will take care of them. God is going to take these two groups, lay them to waste. Done. You don't even have to worry about it. Just trust God. And he tells him, ask God for a sign, anything that you want. And God will deliver to you to let you know he's going to be with you. He's going to protect you. He's going to take care of you. And so Ahaz decides he's going to do something really pious. Ah, I'm not going to trust God. I'm not going to test him in that way. Sounds pious. We're not to test the Lord our God. Let me ask you a question. Are you to test him if he asks you to test him? Seems like a given, doesn't it? God said, ask a sign. That's true. So because Ahaz is teetering on the fence, is sitting on the fence a comfortable place? No, it's not. Isaiah says, you're a coward. And because you have not chosen righteously and you have not trusted the God who has delivered you over and over again, he is going to bring in ruin for Judah and you will be carried away. And this is what happened in the Babylonian captivity. Now, what's interesting about when we get into chapter eight is you find out that just because the king made a bad decision doesn't mean that the people are off the hook. It wasn't my fault our king made this decision. No, every single person in the kingdom was responsible personally for whether or not they trusted God. What's this got to do with baby Jesus? Stick with me, okay? So now the people are wavering into unbelief. We're not going to trust God in this. We need to get with these people. An alliance sounds like a good thing. The more, the merrier. Let's fight. Let's get together. Let's have peace. Let's have man-made peace. Let me ask you a question. Has anybody that has ever set out in a human form to have peace ever had peace? No. 
Because you cannot find peace amongst people. It's impossible. A lot of us are getting ready to go into the Christmas season where you visit family. Look for peace. So, chapter 8. Look at verse 11. And just real quick, for some of you who get freaked out when I do this, when you see all capitals, L-O-R-D, that is God's proper given name as the self-existent one, it's Yahweh. And so when I go through that, I say Yahweh. If it's capital L, lowercase O-R-D, it's Adonai, and that means master. Okay, so he is, you know, the self-existent one, the one who needs nothing in order to be who he is, is saying this. He is the creator, he is the sovereign, he is over all things. Verse 11, for thus Yahweh spoke to me, that's Isaiah, with mighty power, and he instructed me not to walk in the way of the people. Don't go with Judah down this path. They're in unbelief. Don't follow them. Everybody get me? With me, yes? Okay. He's saying, you are not to say it's a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. Now, we don't know anybody that ever acts like that in a national form, do we? Ah, the relevance seeps through. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. What motivated them to unbelief? Fear. Get this, guys. Fear, if it's entertained and not taken captive to the word of God, will always catapult you into unbelief. Every time. Let me ask you a question. If Almighty God, the creator of all things, who supplied your Savior and has guaranteed eternal life for your future, has stepped into history to make all things happen and to have it historically documented for you, what is there to fear? Not a thing. Not a thing. So though God, though Yahweh, had over and over proved himself faithful to these people. They still allowed fear to paralyze them and to look for man-made solutions to God-sized problems. God tells Isaiah, you are not to be like this. You are not to fear. You are not to call it a conspiracy. You're not to say, well, they're just getting together. They're in cahoots with one another and they're all coming against us and we've got to do something quick. We've got to do a solution now. No, you are different because you are a messenger of God. Now watch how this moves forward. Verse 13, it is Yahweh of hosts whom you, Isaiah, should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. I like the word sanctuary. He's going to become a place for you where you go and you stay and you rest and are protected. But notice, it's not a fear of people that gets you there. It is a proper respect, reverence, and fear of God that allows him to be a sanctuary for his people. For Isaiah, for those who choose to be obedient, guess what? God is the rescue of everything you ever wanted in your life. Look how he moves this forward. But to both the houses of Israel, the northern Israel and the southern Judah, to both houses, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap 
for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Why? Because they trusted in the alliances of people instead of the protection of God. God becomes a threat to the people who run from him. Pretty clear, isn't it? Who's asleep? I didn't think so. I have a TV up here. Hmm. Moving on. Verse 16. Here's what he tells Isaiah. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And watch what Isaiah says here. And I will wait for Yahweh, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. So how do you trust in Yahweh when everybody else is running to the hills for fear and trying to make solutions for themselves? You wait. You wait. Oh my gosh, that's not a popular message today. When they put in Burger King, did you notice they had to put in two drive through menus? Did you notice that they had to go back and restructure McDonald's for two drive through menus? Who wants a Big Mac that bad? You do? Okay, never mind. Wait. Wait on God. Wait to see what God will do. Is he faithful? Will he answer? Has he promised to never leave you or forsake you? This is everything that God's ever said is true. But for some reason, when times get forced into panic, everybody loses their minds. And the first thing we abandon is God. I will wait for God. That's how Isaiah is going to be different. I'm going to look for God to bring the solution. Look what he says here. I will even look eagerly for him. That's the whole thing where you're putting your fingers together like this. Anytime, anytime, anytime. And you're not looking to jump at just anything. You're looking to jump on the right thing. How about this? Verse 18, behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me, you have to read previously to get that. I'm not going to get into it. Are for signs and wonders in Israel for Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, now watch, here's the solution to people. Consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Go to a tarot card reading. That'll fix it. Check out a crystal ball. Well, I'm just reading my horoscope. There's no harm in that. Anybody know what a horoscope is called? Unbelief. How many of you have read a horoscope allowed it to dictate your day? I'm supposed to lose five pounds by seven o'clock. Is that happening? No. Why? Because I can't stop eating cookies. That's why. It's not happening. We're looking for the supernatural and unbelief. No. It ain't happening. So notice. Let's go consult occultic practices before we consult the creator of all things. This is a problem. Watch this. Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? Good question. Now here's what Isaiah says. To the law and to the testimony. In other words, go back to the word of God. If you need counsel, wisdom, direction, help, assurance, encouragement, uplifting, a reason to live, God's word stands open. Use it. Embrace it. 
Because it alone provides salvation. If they do not speak according to this word, if they do not speak according to God's law and his testimony, it's because they have no dawn. You know what that means? It's because they're like burnt out bulbs. You can click the switch all you want to. They're not coming on. Everything they've got to say is darkness. So he says here, 21, they will pass through the land hard pressed and famished and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their Elohim, their God, as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. This is no way to live. When God has made himself freely available to these people, this is no way to live. And yet it's the life that they chose. These aren't ignorant people. Well, we just didn't have a Bible. Well, nobody ever told us. They have a prophet speaking on behalf of God. You know what the problem is? Calling them on their sin. See, that's the greatest issue here, is recognizing sin, recognizing how messed up I am, and needing to lay it down. Can you handle when someone rebukes you for your wrong? I'll tell you this, if we can't have a tender heart when that happens, I had that happen to me this week. I got taken to the woodshed by an older man in Christ. It was awesome. I did. Because I was wrong. Because I was misinformed and I was hasty. Because I jumped the gun. Because I allowed for emotions to overcome the truth of the situation. And he lovingly and graciously paddled me silly. And it was a good thing. It was a good lesson. And I have all the respect in the world for this man now because of that. Can you take a rebuke? Can you have a man of God or a woman of God come to you and speak into your life in such a way as to where you stop making excuses for the darkness that you're living in and say, I need the light, period. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know how we're going to figure it out. I don't know how we're going to schedule it. I don't know how I'm going to change. I don't know what it's going to cost me. But the fact is, I need the light because everything I've got in life is dark. You got your king in unbelief. You got your neighbors and your friends in unbelief. And here sits Isaiah. Hold fast to God's word. Why? Because only there is light. Now, what you find is when these people persist in darkness, wouldn't you say they're pretty undeserving? Yes. This is where the grace of God cracks through all of our wrongdoing. Look at verse 9, chapter, sorry, chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. Now, real quick. That means that he disciplined them because of their unbelief. And those are northern regions. If you were looking at a map of Israel, we're familiar with Judea here, right? Mediterranean Sea, everybody with me? Everybody picture this map that I'm drawing with my body. Mediterranean Sea right here. Judea right here. Egypt's down here. Jordan River, yes. Dead Sea. Sea of Galilee. Galilee, Samaria, Judea. Everybody see that? The lands of Zebulun and Naphtali in the Old Testament would have been up in this region around Galilee. 
Everybody with me? Okay. Now watch what he says here. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the nations is essentially what it is. Now watch this. This is interesting. Verse 2. These people who walk in darkness presently, that's a present tense thing going on. Look what it says their future will be. Will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land presently, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with gladness of harvest, as when you're hauling in a whole bunch of food, as men rejoice when they divide the spoils and you sit down to say, you get this, you get this, you get this, you get this. Having a large abundance to pass out to everybody and there's nothing but smiles. Don't you love it when you give a Christmas present to somebody and they're just ear to ear? They're just blessed. I don't know why to be blessed. You want a present, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Ah, too much coffee for Jay. Okay. So notice that though they don't deserve light, God is going to step in and give it anyway. Your present situation may be Your future situation is bright. Let's talk about what that's going to look like because it's going to bring you joy and gladness. Now, the reason why this is so striking for a prophet to say to these rebellious people is because in this moment, in time, when this was written down, that is everything opposite of what they were feeling. And if you know anybody that is trying to exist in darkness is highly emotional and completely irrational, and even though you're giving them the right solution, they're still not ready for it. This is the reason why God does it in prophecy. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. Why? So that when he does it, you can say, God was right all along, and I was wrong. Here he goes. Verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 4. For you shall break the yoke of their burden. And the staff on their shoulders. Everybody get that picture of like their arms, staff behind their neck, their arms cricked up there, right? Break it in half. Give them rest from that. The rod of their oppressors, what beats them as at the battle of Midian. That's a reference to whenever uh, it, it uh, oh gosh, what is his name? Gideon, yes, Gideon. And the 300 men decided they were going to, Trust the Lord for this. And they whittled down their army and they had a very unconventional means of taking over a camp. Guys are waking up, freaked out, killing each other. They didn't have to do anything. It was amazing. So in that same way, it's going to be a victory that's going to be supplied by God. Why? Because your king's in darkness and your people in darkness. What else do you have? You got God. Look what he says. Verse five, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. In other words, what that means is that all armies and conflict will be ended. They will be burned. Everything that seems that it's coming against you at this time, Judah, done. God is going to take care of it. Now here's the great thing. How does he do that? Verse 6, for a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. And you know the people of Judah were like, right. The way that you're going to take care of our dark situation and the depression that we're suffering and the threat of armies coming against us 
and the fact that our king abandoned God, and the fact that all the people around me that I know and love have abandoned God. So it's the struggle that if I don't go with them on this, if I don't follow along the path, that I'm going to be singled out into greater darkness. Let's be honest, we all just want to belong. That's what it boils down to. And so this great light that's going to come along in my problem is going to be a child, a baby, a little one. And that's going to solve our issues? Isaiah, what's wrong with you? How dare you mock us like that? I mean, let's be honest. If we didn't know the end of the story in the New Testament, it would almost seem comical, wouldn't it? It almost seemed like poking fun. Interesting thing about this. Look at verse 6. For a child will be born to us. Here's what's interesting, is it tells you the means of which the solution is going to come. Childbirth. He's not just going to show up on the scene as a full-grown person with pecs blazing, all greased up and his headband ready to go, bullets strapped across his chest. Is that how it's going to happen? Helicopters overhead, parachuting down. Bombardier. Is that how we're doing it? No. Let me ask you a question. Isn't that the way we would do it? Got this big problem to solve. You know, I'm calling Chuck Norris, man. I am. Some of you know my love for Chuck Norris and jokes. He's the only guy to ever build the hospital he was born in. Some of you after lunch will go, oh, it's okay. But God says, no, I'm bringing a child into this situation. And it's going to come in a human means. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Look what it says right after that. A son will be given to us. When you talk about sonship in the Bible, you're talking about a ranking. You are talking about a position. You're talking about an authority. You are talking about a line in the sand. Everybody see the word given? Grace. It's a gift. So in other words, a child will be born. There's the human side. A son will be given. There's the divine side. And guess what? He ain't going to cost you a thing. In fact, up until this time, everything that Isaiah can see that people have earned for the rebellion against God is darkness. They're getting what they deserve. God's saying, no, grace breaks through that. Grace destroys what you have built, and he will show you what he can do. Child is born. A son is graciously supplied. This just isn't anybody. Look what it says. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Everybody see the word government? All rule, all dominion, all spheres of authority will sit upon the shoulders of this child. If that don't resonate with you in 2020, I don't know how to do anything. The government will rest on his shoulders. Guess whose shoulders it's not on? Ours. His. Look what it says here. And his name. What should we call him? His name will be called first, wonderful, counselor. Everybody see this word wonderful? In the Hebrew language, this word wonderful was used 
for only God and God alone, no one else. No one dare used it on any other person, any other thing. This word wonderful was used simply for the creator, strictly for the creator. And stop, counselor. He's not just a counselor, he's a wonderful counselor. What does a counselor do? Don't say counsels. Give me something better than that, guys. What's a counselor do? What? He leads, listens, instructs, helps, encourages. Sometimes you need the stick. Sometimes you get the carrot. Part and parcel, conviction and compassion. He's the wonderful counselor. Don't we see this in Jesus' earthly ministry? Martha, Martha, you're troubled by many things. Man, that had to hurt. Was it true? Yeah. You're consumed with a lot of doings instead of being immersed in being. Don't discard what Mary's done. She's chosen the better portion. Gosh, that had to hurt. I love when he's like, roll back the stone. Do you realize that that's counseling? You know it was because the mindset of everybody around him. In fact, one of the disciples was like, but Lord, he stinketh. Because they talked in King James back then is a the reason why. Lord, he stinketh. No, roll back the stone. Why? Because the wonderful counselor knows better than what we do about this situation. Even though it seems hopeless, even though death is in the mix, he's getting ready to call this guy out of death. That's the wonderful counselor. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. That woman waited to taste her own blood pouring off of her head. She knew she was done for. And what do you find happens? Starting with the older to the younger, they begin dropping their stones and they left. Does no one condemn you? No one, Lord. Go and sin no more, neither do I condemn you. Did he have the right to condemn her? Notice he's a wonderful counselor. How about the next one? Mighty God. Man, this is a good one. When I was doing some research on them, uh, a commentator named Unger says he's the champion God. He can do anything. Can you imagine 12 guys losing their minds on a ship? And Jesus is asleep below. Think about that situation. I know we've heard it a million times. But he steps out. He rebukes their unbelief. Thank you, wonderful counselor. And then he says, peace, be still. And everything. And I guarantee you this. Those men had never known a peace like that before. We know from John chapter 1, we know from Hebrews chapter 1, he was indispensable working with the Father and the Holy Spirit and calling the world into existence when there was previously nothing. There was no previous matter. This wasn't previously Plato that he molded into something brand new. It was nothing. And he calls it all into existence through the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is mighty God. He is God in the flesh. How about the next one? Eternal 
Father. Or this is sometimes translated as the Father of all eternity. In other words, in whatever stretch of our universe in which time extends, in which space and matter goes, there is no part of it that he is not over and on the other side of. Is everybody aware that heaven is another dimension? Everybody get that? When it says that Jesus returns and he rips through the sky, it rolls up like a scroll. That means because when you go out and you look up in your sky, he's on the other side of it somewhere waiting. That's what it means. Now that'll freak out your gourd for the rest of the day, and that's okay. But that's because he's supposed to blow our minds. He is the father of all eternity. Before time began, he was. When time is done, he is. And he is right now. Time does not hold him. It is not a construct that captures him. Instead, he sees over all, every bit of it at the same time. There's nothing that escapes him. It's true of God. It's true of Jesus. Why? Jesus is God. How about the last one here? He's the Prince of Peace. See, if you want to know what this announcement of the birth of a child that a son has given to us is, it's actually a declaration of war. That's what it is. It's a declaration of war on unbelief. And the fact that Jesus was born in a manger is the seal that God will do as he has promised to do. But he doesn't bring a war with weapons. If I was Peter in the garden, I would have been hacking ears too. That's not the way Jesus was going to take care of this. Why? Because he uses peace to get accomplished what he needs to get done. His means of working with people are completely unconventional to what we are used to. We live in a world full of stress and strife. We live into people scrambling and killing themselves so that they'll be okay. Think about that. I actually saw a newspaper headline. Police are being warned that the mob is going to try to get a hold of the vaccine so they can sell it on the black market for higher prices. Forgive me for my encouragement here, but who gives a rip? How ridiculous it is that we scramble like mice when the lights come on. Our entire culture is managed by fear. We wonder why we can't have peace because we can't get in tune with the Prince of Peace who that's all he's about. Interesting about this word peace, the word shalom, you're familiar with it. You probably heard it a lot. Shalom doesn't mean, well, there's no war going on right now. No, it doesn't mean, well, no one's stressed out right now. No, it means harmony, abundance. It means exploding. It's not just tranquility. It's talking about abundance. It is talking about above and beyond what we expect in peaceful relationships. No, he's the prince of peace. He's here to usher in farther and greater and the best. That's who he is. If I can't get Ahaz to be an obedient king, then I will bring about a king. And he will live in such perfect fellowship with me that he will demonstrate to the world exact type of relationship I want to have with them every moment of every day. 
Now, here's what's interesting about this. Everything we just read in verse 6 pertains more to first coming stuff about Jesus. Look at verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government, of his rule or his dominion, or of peace. No end. Once it's established, it's forever. He says here, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Why does that matter? Why would he bring that up? Anybody know? Well, it's God-chosen people, the Israelites, yes. Yes, because this prophecy in Isaiah 9, as well as the one in Isaiah 7.14, is all compounded, and it's an elaboration of a promise that was made to David. So, let's get our twiddle fingers out. Let's take a trip real quick. Everybody turn back to 2 Corinthians, or sorry, forgive me, 1 Chronicles. Chronicles, Corinthians, you know, they're nowhere near each other. It's just an amazing mistake on my part. 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 17, just so you can see it, just so you have it for yourself, starting in verse 9. 1 Chronicles 17, starting in verse 9, this is what's known as the Davidic covenant. This is a promise, an agreement, a contract that the Almighty Creator of all things made with King David because of David's profound love. For God, he was called a man after God's own heart. Good grief if we could only live lives where we died being the one who loved him the most. Look what he says here, verse 9. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be moved again. And the wicked will not waste them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Doesn't that sound like the gunk that they're wading through in Isaiah right now? Yeah. Now look what he promises here. What's his solution? It's the same one. Moreover, I tell you that Yahweh will build a house for you. And that word house doesn't mean some structure with three bedrooms and 2.5 baths and a two-car garage. It's not what it's talking about. The idea of house there is dealing with a lineage or a dynasty, or what is your offspring and the future of your family going to look like? God is going to build it. Look what he says, verse 11. When your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be of your sons, and I will establish his, what is it? Kingdom, his rulership, his reign. Royalty is the idea there. You want to mark that. You want to pay attention to it. Look what he says after that, verse 12. He shall build for me a house. This is what Solomon did for him. And I will establish his, what's the word? Throne, the seat of his being, the idea of where you sit when you rule. How long? No, not forever. Give me some sandlot. Forever. Forever. His throne forever. Look at the next part. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you, from Saul. Good grief, that's chills. God actually took his loving kindness away from somebody. He's promised not to do that here. He says here, verse 14, but I will settle him in my house, the house of God, and my 
kingdom, Yahweh's reign, Yahweh's royalty. Look what he says after that. How long? Thank you for learning that. Good. Forever. And his throne shall be established. How long? Forever. Everybody see the common language with what we're dealing with here in Isaiah 9. Go back to verse 7. 9, 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government, of his rule, or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And real quick, your new American standard does not have that capitalized. Correct that for the translators there, please, and capitalize the H in his. His kingdom. It's in just any old kingdom. We're talking about the birth of the child, the son. It's his kingdom. Notice what it says, to establish it, to set it up, to put it right, and to uphold it, to sustain it with two things, justice and righteousness. If you want to know how Christ is going to reign as the coming king, it's going to be in perfect justice and in perfect righteousness from then on and forevermore. Not only is this child divinity, not only is this child 100% a human being, this child is going to rule and he's going to reign. And this birth in the manger is a type of first fruits of his kingdom to come. Now we know the response of people as Jesus lived his life because Jesus was a hateful, mean guy who didn't care about anybody and loved to beat children and cheat on his taxes. That's the Jesus we know, isn't it? No! Somebody's on LSD if they think that's what Jesus was about. Some of us are on LSD now, Jay. (laughs) Ah, Jesus. Um, You can't find anything wrong with him in the record of Scripture, can you? You got four books to testify to his earthly life. And I can't find anything wrong. You can compare them side by side. Did you know that they all fit together perfectly if we'll just take the time to work through them chronologically? And you can't find a thing wrong with him. And yet you've got a people living in darkness, in no light, seeking out for fortune tellers to tell them how to move forward, waiting for Oprah to give me the next thing that I ought to be obsessed with in my life. Looking for all those commercials to let me know what it looks like to be happy. Does everybody see that the world is trying to sell us hell? And people are buying. St. Nicholas situation is a whole nother world, isn't it? Not a fan. I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm not going to kill it. I'm not a fan. Research who he really was. Bishop of Myra. Beaten for his generosity and spreading of the gospel. Loved kids and gave them presents. Why? Because it opened a door for him to talk about this child who would be king forever. That's what it boils down to. Look at the last little verse here in Verse 7, the zeal, the zeal. I love it. Sometimes it's translated jealousy. We would understand it as excitement. We would understand it as a whole lot of caffeine. It's six cups of Canute's coffee is what it is. 
the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. In other words, God will do whatever it takes to go through whatever he needs to in history, to work in, under, through, and beyond people in order to bring about his son. Did he not do this? Did he not do this? Luke chapter 2. And there's a census. Can you imagine that conversation? Uh, honey, we got to go down to Bethlehem. Don't you know I'm nine months pregnant? Yeah, we got to go to Bethlehem. Hmm, is that a safe decision for you, Joseph? You know how those ladies talk. Love you, baby. Thought you were still out there taking care of the baby. Um, <laughs> but here's what you find. God will do whatever it takes to fulfill his word. Why? Because he understands that people in darkness need light. Because he understands that a people who are directionless need a king. And here's the great thing about Jesus Christ. He's the final king. He's the perfect king. He's the righteous king. He's the peaceful king. He is the triumphant king. He is the saving king. He is the gracious king. And he is the final king. He's the king. See, this announcement about the birth of Jesus is not a, really about a child. It's about God's profound means of manifesting grace to a dying world. I don't know about you. We need a king. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your holy word. I thank you for the promise of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, coming to rule with righteousness and justice of His throne. There will be no end predicted to David, promised by the giving of a baby in a human means, being divine, but yet giving His life for the world. Father, if we're in darkness this holiday season, pray that we would recognize all the places that we flee that have invited more darkness. And we would turn away from those things and we would look to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for your grace in this matter. It's in His Holy name we pray it, amen.